0: If you have your Bible, go ahead and turn to Exodus chapter 20.
1: Uh, we are continuing in our 10th commandment series. Um, we are almost all the way through. Uh, we're getting to the end, but Exodus chapter 20, and again, my apologies. Uh, normally would like to have uh, one of our members read scripture, but bad um, plans on my part. Uh, Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 15. Uh, and then we'll read together and we will jump right in. I'm reading from the NASB as always, uh, and the words will be on the screen also as always. Then God spoke all these words, saying, I am Yahweh your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other God before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above, or on the earth beneath, or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them, for I, Yahweh your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children and on the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness of God, and thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of Yahweh your God in vain, for Yahweh will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath days to keep it holy. Six days shall labor and do all your work, but on the seventh day is the Sabbath of, the, of Yahweh your God in it. You shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter, your male or your female servant cattle, Or your sojourner who stays with you. For in six days Yahweh made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, Yahweh blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and mother, and that your days may be prolonged in the land which uh, Yahweh your God has given to you or gives you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. And you shall not steal. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Um, I have to quickly comment before we start uh, that uh, I was in Vegas, literally maybe 10 hours ago, officiating my cousin's wedding, Um, and I had a chance to just walk up and down the strip, and if you were here last week, and what we talked about, oh, it was heavy. Everything we talked about last week, it was so just in your face. It was um, incredible. Um, We went because my wife has never been, and she wanted to kind of just see the lights and mostly the water show at the Bellagio, but just walking around, it was hard. Um, I felt like I couldn't look anywhere. Uh, It was just one of those things. just something that we ought to continually pray for and keep on our minds. Um, so anyway. I have a confession to make to all of you. I know that on the outside I may look really squeaky clean and innocent, like I don't do anything wrong, but when I was nine, I stole a pack of gum and some stickers from CVS once. <laughs> Um, Now, all jokes aside, our commandment for today, you shall not steal, on the surface, probably doesn't appear that difficult to most of you. Among the Ten Commandments, if you're just kind of being honest, this is probably the one that worries you the least, or the one that you are most confident that you keep. That we are mostly good and law-abiding people, unless you're like me. In fact, I think it's more likely that we've been on the receiving end of this commandment, having been burglarized. A year ago, my laptop was stolen out of my office here at the church, and then our church was broken into about four months prior to that, um, and so much stuff was taken. Um, And so we are probably on the receiving end of this commandment, more so than on the committing end, that we have been burglarized rather than being the burglars, right? Which means, the critical question that we have to ask, and that this commandment, in my opinion, is asking, is what does it speak to those who feel that we are mostly good and law-abiding? And again, I think that all of you are mostly good and law-abiding. Or maybe we gotta ask, like, does this have anything to say to us at all? Like, can you just tune it out for today? Right, last week you're probably like, oh, yeah, I gotta listen to this one, I had everyone's attention pretty sufficiently. And a couple of the other ones, you're like, yeah, I gotta listen, but this one, you're probably like, good. No, I'm good, I'm, I'm, I'm good. Like, I'm not like you, bro, I can control my hunger better than you, right? Like, you're okay. But I think this commandment speaks a much deeper word and a wider word than I think many of the others might, perhaps. I think this commandment touches every single human being on the planet, and I think it's so much deeper than we are willing to admit. And I think most importantly, the reason why you ought to pay attention is because I think this commandment speaks a very critical element of why your relationship with God is probably not the way that you want it to be. There's something here that I think we miss, and I think we hope to un- uh, unpack that. So the three questions that we've been doing, but in a little bit different order today. First, the what, not the why. What does God mean? Second, why does Steal in Hebrew is the Greek, uh, Hebrew word "gadav," right? And in the Hebrew language, there's multiple words, right, that are translated to steal. But this one that is used here in Exodus has a nuance that all the others don't, and the nuance is that of secrecy. So what, the, what God is referring to here is not just a blatant act of taking something, like I took. Uh, and from the CVS, right, with my sticky little fingers, right, but the more the subtle and the secretive taking of something that isn't our own. Now, the Greek word that's used to translate "gnaw," right, into Greek, is even more telling, it's the Greek word, you'll see it on the screen, klepto, it's where we get the word kleptomania, and here's what the Mayo Clinic uh, online uh, gives a definition of kleptomania, you'll see it on the screen. It's the reoccurrent inability, to resist urges to steal items that you generally don't really need and that usually have little value to you. Kleptomania is a rare but serious mental health disorder that can cause much emotional pain to you and your loved ones if not treated. This word, kleptomania, comes from directly the Greek klepto, which is a Greek word used to translate the knowledge which is the word that we have here for steal. So klepto then means stealing secretly and craftily But more so, if you dig into the Greek word, it'll tell you that it means to deceive, to cheat, to conceal, to hide, or to do anything in a shifty manner. It's no wonder that Swiper from Dorothy's floor, as you'll see on the screen, is a fox because he's the most cunning and sly creature in the forest. Swiper, no, swipe me, swiper, no, swipe me, swiper, no, swipe me, and then he doesn't swipe your things. They should have named him Klepto, and I think it would have been appropriate. Now, again. When you consider, by the way, the fact that that's in Dorley's glory is right.
0: When you consider
1: the scope of the word that God uses, all of a sudden, I think it'll hit home. Because it's so much more than the shoplifting that I did when I was little or the burglary that some people engage in all the time. For even more in, uh, in Mark 11, Jesus says, right? You know this famous scene where he walks in the temple and he flips everything over, right? And he says, "You've made the house of prayer a, a, a robber, a, a den of robbers." Right? That word that he uses, robbers or thieves, right? Was intended to do something. Like this. And I'll tell you the story, the scenario. What ended up happening in Jerusalem in the temple is that people from all over the place they journey to Jerusalem to go to the temples. In the temple, what you do is you buy animals because you're not bringing dead animals with you, right? So you buy animals. At the bring your money, you buy your animals, and you sacrifice. All good so far up until that point. But what the what the Jewish people in the temple started to do, right, was they started to do a couple things. One, they would only take temple currency, which means if you didn't have temple currency or you had money from elsewhere, you had to go exchange it, right? And so what they ended up doing to make a, a quick buck, essentially, was they would charge you crazy fees for exchanging money, number one, and they would charge you crazy high prices, the animals themselves. I was just in Korea not too long ago and everyone told me that we need to be careful and I was so thankful that I spoke Korean well because I could sense that if I came out bumbling with my Korean, right, I'd be like, like, how much is this? Maybe they would have just straight ripped me off because I don't know anybody. It's that kind of an idea. So they were making money off of doing this and that's what Jesus was referring to. Now, and the crazy thing is you actually might think this is normal. If you've ever traded Pokemon cards or basketball cards, yeah, you're guilty because that unsuspecting fool, for you, you took advantage of that fool and you fleeced him, gave him I I don't know, I don't, know, I don't even know Pokemon, I'm not even pretending to know Pokemon, maybe gave him a Pikachu for like some sort of or you, know. you know what this is like, this is called Kleptomania. Now, here are a couple more examples of how this plays out in your daily lives. And this is where I want you to pay attention. To. Because, again, this is not me saying you're bad if you check off one of these things. Again, the whole idea is if you fall to one of these things that I'm going to describe as something like it, that means there's something going on much deeper that we'll dig into. And, again, I'm telling you, whatever this is that we will uncover today has a much larger and greater impact on your relationship with Jesus and God than you, I think, are willing to admit. So, just, again, ask yourself if these scenarios sound familiar to you. Have you ever taken office supplies from your work or your school? Klepto. Have you ever used your company's computers to view non-work websites or play games while at work on work time? That's klepto. Have you ever, though you are contracted to come into work at 8 and leave at 5, you come in at 8.15 maybe, and you leave 4.40-ish, and your 15-minute coffee break is like usually 22 minutes and your lunch hour is like an hour and 15. That's klepto. This doesn't apply to this society anymore because we live in the world of Netflix and streaming and whatnot. But back in the day when all of us we used to download our movies and download all of our music illegally off of torrents, that Certain restaurants have gone to the degree that if you ask for a water cup, they give you the clear one, and then the soda cup is either the cardboard or a colored one. It's to differentiate for all of you kleptomaniacs who decide to steal soda from these restaurants. Using someone's house's ID to sneak into lifetime? (laughs) What do you do when a cashier accidentally gives you more money than you are owed? Do you return it or do you keep it? Christians will say, oh, that's God's blessing, thank you. At the end of the day, when they settle their register, someone pays for that. I think when we think about this, we think it's the dirty mechanics out there, quote unquote, that would charge unsuspecting people and say, oh, you need to fix this and fix this on your car, you need to get this update or whatever when they don't need it. But again, we aren't too far from that. Or the scammers on eBay when you try to buy something and it's fake, again, we are not too far from that. Even in the church, apparently in the Stout, some churches will go out and sell very, very expensive, even gold plated Bibles to the poor who cannot read, saying you need God's Word, brother and sister. Or even when you fundraise for a mission, when you subtly, ever so subtly, guilt trip them into giving you money so you can go on mission. That's klepto. And one that affects all of us. If you gossip, you are straight robbing that person of their character and their reputation. Isn't that klepto? Now, we can go on and on for days, unfortunately. But you get the point. That's what Jesus and God here is referring to. Now, I'm just going to be straight, brutally honest with you. If you think this does not apply to you you your life, or you may be one of the other. Most likely both. Did you get that? But then, why does God speak this commandment? And this is much more important. Can you, thank you. I kept looking at Swiper. <laughs> why does God speak this commandment? Let's go a little deeper now and see how big the scope is. Through, okay? But here's the historical context of why God gives this commandment. Okay? In those days, right, God was speaking into a situation, right, in which the rich were getting richer and the poor were getting poorer. If you study history or sociology all over the world, it happens everywhere, especially in wealthy countries like ours. But worse than those days, God's people, God's wealthy, were doing this and taking money and other things from the poor. the so wealthier getting wealthier. If, you, uh, if you've heard the story, right, where the, uh, the poor woman comes and she gives her last penny, you tell know that story? We think it's about faith? On well, one level, maybe it is. The situation is the men, the, the scribes, what they would do, they would go prey on these widows and basically take them for every last penny because they had no status or anything in the society. That's what the people were doing. The rich were getting richer and the poor were
0: getting poor, and God was speaking into this. Ronald Wallace, we've quoted here a lot throughout this series, says
1: this, it's on the screen <laughs> I have not redeemed your brother that he might lie, starve, being exposed under your feet. Nor have I been especially generous to you in order that you put power in your hands to further and him. Give to your brother that he needs for his welfare, out of what you have, that's important. For you, what you have is mine, and to withhold your hand from him is to steal from me. Like the rest of the commandments, God speaks this commandment out of who he is in his character. If you know who God is, you know that God is a sacrificially giving God who would never take that which is not his own. As John 10 says, he's the good shepherd who comes to give, giving his life for the sheep. While the false shepherds, they come to steal and to destroy. But as we've seen throughout these commandments, God doesn't care as much about the fact that you may be stealing, more so than why you do it. And the source of this, that the reason why you engage, the reason why, I know, going on that you must recognize and it's actually so much more harmful to you than you are willing to give it credit for. Here are the three deeper issues. And we're going to go through them one by one. The first one is this. I say it like this, it's I do not own, but rather I have. Now I want to clarify before we continue that this commandment isn't telling us that having things is bad. Or that wanting things is bad. No, no, no. None of those things are bad. We are people who need things like shelter, food, clothing, home, family, connection, love. And having these things isn't wrong in any way. But here's what's problematic and ask yourself this. We live in a world where we think that what we have is mine outright. I own it for myself to my degree. Which is directly contradicting Psalm 24.1 that says and there's all green. Uh, the earth is Yahweh's and all that it contains the world and those who dwell in it. All of this and all of us is God." So God's teaching us in this little and short commandment is that everything that we see is His. That He, Yahweh, is the absolute owner of things. That all we have is is that which God has entrusted to us. We're just simply borrowing. it. We're not alone. It's why we call ourselves stewards. If you've been in the church a lot, you have been called that you need to be good stewards of what God has given to you. A steward is someone who takes care of the things that has been given to them. We are stewards, caretakers of the gifts that God has given to us. Parents, you are stewards of the gifts that God has given to you in your children. Siblings, you are stewards of your precious siblings that God has given to you as family, and so on and so forth, which means that in the end, you will be accountable to God for the things that He has given to you to care for. I think it's why he says that he judges teachers more harshly than others. Why? Because the people you've been given to teach, or to lead, or to serve, whatever word you want to use, you are stewards, caretakers of them who are God's gift to you. Now I admit, straight up, that this probably sounds foolish to all of you, and to downright everyone in society. To be like, wait, wait, wait. Everything that I have—my grades, my success, my college degree, my job, my house, my car, my clothes—everything. You trying to tell me that
0: that's God's and not mine? Like.
1: And you might be like, wait, 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 how does that make any sense? Well, let me put it to you this way. Really think about it. What that you have, okay? Think of all the things that you have. Your possessions, your family, all everything. What amongst the things that you have is absolutely and completely your own doing and responsibility? Your family? Did you choose that? Anybody? Parents, any of you choose the children that you have? Your parents did you shoot that? No, no, no. Your spouse did no. at no, all. No, no. I, I chose my wife. Thank you very much. Like, I won her. I'm really charismatic. I'm really good-looking. I'm really well-spoken. She chose me. That's my wife. But if you really think about it, if you met your wife at 25, were you responsible for the 25 years before you met your wife or your husband? You know, if any one little thing changes in those 25 years, you may not meet that person. They're not in your city. They're not in your church. They're not in your school. If I didn't go on missions to Vancouver randomly because my youth pastor happened to go to school or uh, went to school in Vancouver and had a a girl that he was dating and uh, later married, I wouldn't have gone to Vancouver and I wouldn't have met Christina, we would not be married because Mason, Connor, and Kara would not exist and I wouldn't be
0: here. I'm responsible for that. Are you? We're
1: not responsible for the things that you think that you've earned or owned. in the room, where'd you get that intelligence from? Were you just like, work that one day? Did you dig it from the ground? Did you eat it in the apples you ate or whatever? Like, okay. So the question, if you're really willing to admit this, I know, it, it hurts your pride, I know, I get it. But the question is, then how did I use that which was entrusted to me? If you're tall, like, I, I, I'm thankful, I'm so thankful that I am fairly tall. I hate it when I'm on airplanes. But other than that, I'm really thankful. well, what, what, I'm responsible for my height? No. There's no secret sauce either. God gives it to you. I mean, I, I'm, I'm, I tell my kids that they don't sleep and eat well and do all those things. They won't be tall on some level. But yeah, you'll be healthier. Maybe you'll be taller than you would be. But if God wants you to be a certain height, then you won't be that certain height for me. Now, if you look in scripture, you see this everywhere. Okay. Did you know that Israel had a seventh year in what's called the year of Jubilee. We talked about this before. The seventh year says every seventh year the land was to be laid left alone, laid fallow. Okay, nobody touched it. But you know why? Nobody was allowed to touch their land every seven years, so that the poor and the needy could go and eat off of it whenever. You weren't allowed to touch it. So whatever grew naturally off the land as God provided, everybody, especially the poor, was allowed to go on anybody's land for the entire year, meaning whatever they wanted. Why? Because it's a reminder, this is not yours. I can make things grow on this land. Why? Because I'm God and you're not, and you don't got to touch it, and I'll still do what I want. The year of Jubilee, every 50th year, 4950, 7 times 7, right? All the lands that were owned were returned to their original owners. So let's say you own this plot of land, and then it got sold over here, and then it got sold over here, and it got sold over here, and it got sold over here. After, on the year of Jubilee, it would go all the way back to the original owner, no matter what. Why? So that people would be reminded that the land that they were on could not be sold or owned permanently. Why? Because it doesn't belong to the owner. It is God's, and God's wealth. Malachi 3.8, you'll see it on the screen, it says, Will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me, God says. When well, you say, how have we robbed you, God? And he said, in tithes and offering." Now we're not going to go too deep into it, because I don't really like to talk about it too much here on the pulpit, but because God owned all things, he told them, especially the first 10%, that was to be returned to me because I gave it to you in the first, first place. that people weren't doing that. People, I told you. If the whole, if the American church, everyone who calls this a Christian, 10%, world hunger, would go away in about four years. Like, you know, but tithing was a way that people were reminded to recognize that God owns everything, right? Especially back in those days, if God doesn't bring the rain and all these other things, then the harvest, the crops don't grow. Everything was God, and they reminded of that. So again, I do not have, I do not own, but rather I have. So the question you're to ask, you see it on the screen, is this. The question isn't how much should I give to God, but how much does God want me to keep for myself that which He has given to me? sobering question, and you don't want to ask it, because you might—you have no idea what God wants to say. Right? So I do not know, or but rather I have, issue number one. And the second one is connected. The second issue goes like this, what I have is not for me, but for God. See, when you recognize that all the things that you have belong to God, then it changes that which you use of what you have. See, we're so fortunate to live in the United States. We have all the wealth, and the comfort, and the freedoms that anybody can want. Everyone knows that we're fortunate. But not everyone in the world lives this way. You know this, right? We know that the majority of the world do not live like us. They don't have the affluence. Did you know everyone lives in the States? The median average person lives in the States, I think, is in the top .5% of the world's economic status. Like, they're the richest of the richest. But most of us in our country, though we know that this is the case, we do everything that we can to maintain or further go the life that we have with very little, if any, concern for the world around us. God says, this is kleptomania. To Martin Luther famously once says, you'll see on the screen, if the goods are not available to the community, then they are stolen. God says we are blessed to be a blessing. And if you know God's love, you know that His love has always been for others more than it has been for Himself. What God has, He always gives to bless others. And He's saying you ought to do the same because I have given it to you to be a blessing. But let's be honest. Don't we hold on to everything that we have? We find crafty ways to hold on to everything that we have. Like even this, in the city you drive around and you see the homeless folks at the corner of every street and all that kind of stuff. I've heard it so many times. Oh, you know what? No, 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 no. You can't give that person money. Why? Well, because all they're gonna do is go and buy more alcohol or drugs or whatever just blow. It. But have you? Why is that necessarily your duty and your concern? And how do you actually know? Because if the concern, honestly, was that you were concerned that they wouldn't use their money properly, you know what you would really do if you are really concerned? You would stop the car,
0: get out, and say, hey, are you hungry?
1: And you would either do one of two things. You would either put them in your car, drive them over to the place so that you can pay with your money the food, that you want to give to them, or you say, hey, hold up for one second, then you drive around the corner to the nearest McDonald's or whatever, buy the food, come back and say, here, let me give you some food. Because then that would definitively take care of the fact that they wouldn't use the money that you give them for the alcohol or the drugs or whatever terrible thing you do, but you don't do that. You just drive away and say, see, I saved you from engaging in your alcoholism or whatever. You're not as altruistic as we think we are. I had a chance to go to Austin with my family, not too long ago, for a little date trip. We went to this uh, restaurant called Bofumina, it's, it's this Neapolitan pizza place. Tiny little restaurant, like a 45 minute wait because it's very popular. It's me and my entire family, right, like my mother-in-law, my kids, It's a ruckus in there, We're like in the waiting space is literally like this big, so like hair, and they're all climbing all over the face. and I was like, oh my goodness, they're to kick this out of here. So I said, you know what, we got to find something different to do. On the way, we passed by a homeless village of tents, and I said, honey, why don't you take the kids, go to McDonald's buy some cheeseburgers or whatever, and then go hand out some food, the home food. Great idea. She takes all the kids, goes to McDonald's, buys a whole bunch of cheeseburgers, like $25 or whatever, buys them all, and then she goes, right? She parks her car, apparently she runs across like East Chavez Street, like really dangerous, with all the kids, I love my wife again, right? And then she goes, and then she gets there, she's got the bag of the food, and then she goes, and then when she walks up, apparently, and I hope I'm not butchering the story, but this is what I remember, a person walked up to them, from the village. It's like, you know, like 10 or 12, you know, like tents. And they're like, oh my goodness. And they're like, yeah, hey, we just, you know, uh, we were just in the area and we saw you guys we just wanted to give you some food. So then the person came out. She took the bag of food. And you know what that person did? She screamed almost and woke everybody up to make sure every single person in the community got at least one cheeseburger. Equally sharing amongst themselves. <laughs> That is the anti kleptomania, if you're getting it. But we craftily hold on to things like this, don't we? We find crafty, sneaky, swiper ways to not share, not to give, to conceal. This, in my opinion, rather than straight taking, is the deeper and more dark version and the wicked version of kleptomania. We live with this idea that we cannot share. It's to the point where I don't know if you ever felt this, right? But like you go out, and I've, had, I've heard kids complain, like, hey, why do I have to share my iPad with my siblings? This, is not, this doesn't happen in our house, because we don't even have iPads. You, but anyway. Other, why do I have to share? Well, because. Well, you know, Jerome, I always say Jerome. Jerome's family, everyone got the iPad for themselves, so I thought i don't how to share it. And what do we feel as parents? Let's be honest. We feel bad. Because <coughs> we have to make our kids share. As you might have guessed, Because we want to keep things for me, and as we continually make this our own, we fall to the power of things and stuff, the subtle need to cling, to get more and to collect. But here's the real thing. When we do this, all it is doing is showing us that we deep down believe that these things keep us secure. Our clothes, our shoes, our success, whatever, it makes us beautiful and attractive, worth it. Our cars, our homes, it makes us successful. Our things, it keeps us safe. I said this before, which is really funny. We buy all these things to feel like we're secure, and we buy securities for our things. We buy a home, because that's, that's what makes me feel secure, and then we buy a home security system. And then the doorbell that has God, because these things keep us safe. Our greed isn't even necessary for the thing itself. It's what the thing does for us. The hope it gives us. The security provides us. The relief it gives us to our anxieties. It's no wonder that Jesus spends more time percentage-wise speaking about money and property than anything else. Because the way we feel about our things and others, other people's things, speaks a very strong word to our health and our spiritual health. Yeah. So what I have is not mine, but it is God's. And third, and lastly, and a
0: gut punch to all of us, I think all this means you'll see on the screen is that we, I, have
1: trust issue. This commandment, at the heart of it, is addressing our deep sense of insecurity that eats at us day in and day out. Anxieties about our future, our success, our jobs, our status, our reputations, our health, our relationships, etc. You can go on and on and on and on and on forever and ever and this will never end. That's why it's not coincidence that Psalm 23, David says, Yahweh is my shepherd, I shall not want. And then my professor says this because Yahweh is my shepherd. Not only will I not want, I have and will have all I need. That has to be our influence. This is not your slave. Because we know that God promises to give us all the things that we need according to the riches of His glory. It's written right there. So when we think about it, Here's what I think is happening when you and I feel or hold on to these things. I think three things are happening in this order, and you'll see them on the screen. The first thing that happens is this, God actually isn't good, right, and He doesn't care about my well-being, and He's doing these things, and I feel this way because why He's not taking care of me. When my life isn't going the way that I want to, we decide that God isn't good because He's not taking care of me, and therefore He doesn't care. Then when we think that, the second thing that we do, therefore, we believe that God cannot be trusted. Why? Because He doesn't actually meet my needs, or is simply too slow to meet them. And because He doesn't meet them, or is too slow to meet them, I can't trust Him. How can I trust a God like that? I thought you cared, God. And then the third thing that happens is that we take matters into our own hands. Why? This idea that we fear being left behind, left out, or left without all the things that we think we need, so therefore we take, and therefore we cling. The former president of my seminary, James Houston, said, all possessiveness, you see on the street is born out of fear." My professor takes it one, Daryl Johnson takes it one step further and he says this on the screen, I only cling to what I think I own in the face of other people's needs because, maybe it's not a therapist, it isn't Because I fear the consequences for my family and myself if I were not to give, if I were to give away. I only take what is not my own because I fear that I would miss out on life without those things. Here's what he's saying. We only take and we only cling because we fear what would happen to my family or myself if I were to give these things away. I only take what isn't mine because I fear deep down that if I don't, I'm going to miss out on the life that would happen if I had those things. And if all that is true, which I think it is, then it means that kleptomania is indeed the disease of what we call the unfaith. We've got trust issues. We cannot believe that God will take care of us in the end. If you've been in a relationship, you know how this works. One of the self-defense mechanisms in a lot of relationships when you feel like the other person is going to take care of you and they're going to do bad things to you, you push them away, don't you? So ask yourself, could this be perhaps the thing at the core of why it is so hard to trust and follow and live for God? Because we can't trust Him. So the third question, and we finish here, how would we then keep this commandment? And the answer is simple. Focus on God's good faith and faith. If you read the scriptures, so much of it tells us that God is our helper, thankfully you. You read that he's our provider. You read that he promises to never leave us nor forsake us. That he will be our God and that we will be his people. Some of you know my story, I was in Vegas and I had an older cousin, her name is Tay. And she lived a life a lot like mine. Her mom left her when she was six and she had she was her stepmom's after that and then the final one that stuck, and I was talking to her, and I thought her life was exactly the same because you know, my mom left when I was seven, yeah, yeah, and yeah, so on and so forth. And then she was talking and she said the thing that she feared the most in life is that she would be an orphan. And so she cut, she clinged to her dad because she couldn't imagine life without But God tells us that he would never leave us nor forsake us. And it undoes that. And you're like, how do I know? Well, God sheds even His own blood on the cross to seal that promise. We have to remember that. It's why Paul says, if God is for us, who can be against us? What can possibly separate us from Him if He would do that which He has done? I mean, ask yourself this. I have to remind myself this. All of us remind ourselves this all the time. If God has given me Jesus, His own Son, then cannot God be trusted to give me the rest of what I need? If He is taking care of my greatest need, which is that I will not die, but live forever, then will He not care for the rest? It's a matter of degree, isn't it? It's not to say that you don't have fears, it's not to say you don't have insecurities, it's that we surrender them, that we place our hope and our hope and our trust on God. It's why the first commandment is this, God, and make Him your one and only. Put all your trust in Him. Love Him, for He is everything to us. By following the commandment, we're saying we beg on God and nothing else. I said it before, but none of this is going to be fixed because I tell you to do things. And so this will be the one time I probably say this on a public scale, at least on a sermon, because I don't want to talk about it much, but when you talk about tithing, Tithing, sorry, tithing. Tithing? You are never going to give. You are never going to be generous with your tithe if I tell you that you have to. That's just never going to work that way. You're not going to give because I tell you that you're selfish. Probably make make you even more mad or whatever. Because our lack of ability to give reveals our lack of trust in God who gives me and loans me and entrusts me with everything that I need. So what we like to do in here is what I just told you, we're going to keep emphasizing on the goodness and the faithfulness of our God, that we can bake on God. Actually, if you read the Bible, it doesn't actually tell you, emphasize that you should give all the time. But what it tells you to do again and again and again, it tells you that God is good, He's faithful, He's perfect, He is loving, and that you can trust in Him. You can take that to the bank, you can take it to the grave, you can take it to hell and he still gets up and you'll be okay. That should get an amen from all of us. So I want to finish with a quote from my professor and then a section on Proverbs that I hope that you would repeat and remind. Because we think it's small, but deep down it's killing us. So here's what my professor said. You'll see it on the screen. If I really believe that the one who freely—that's important—who freely, by his choice, went to the cross for me, can take care of me. If I believe that Jesus, who goes to the cross on his by His will can take care of me, then I will not be afraid to give myself away to Him and purpose in the world. If we have been won by the love of God and Jesus Christ, we will want to give all that we can to make sure other people get in on that love. Hmm. You're in a he will do everything else for us that which we need, that which he knows is best if we win one by the love of God in Jesus Christ we want to give all that we can to make sure that people get in on that love I have maybe a minute so I want to share this again I was talking talk to my cousin and she said that her biggest thing over the weekend her primal fear was that she'd be left in Northfield and it struck it hit it hit struck a in me and I looked at it, and I was like, oh, that's interesting, because you know what, I've never been afraid to be a because I've been more for I've never had parents that love me. So the one thing that I wanted in all of my life, and I told you this, is to prove to everyone that what my dad and my mom and all those people who never loved me did was that it would make me a failure and make me a pump and never be able to take care of my own family. Right? And then you know the story, when I first came to Houston, what happens, I get my family I get my knee and everything that I thought that I could trust on taken away. And I was left with nothing but faith in God. And you you basically, for 15 months, said, are you going to trust me? Am I enough? You trust that if I die for you, that I'll take care of you and give you everything that you need? No faking? For real? And though it was difficult, I said, yeah. It is why I am. But if you don't believe that God will do all things necessary for your good, and if you can't trust that, then in some ways all of this will mean not much to you. If you don't believe that you are beautiful because God made you that way, then you will seek to earn the beauty and the appreciation and the love of others. If you believe and you don't believe that God says you're enough and that you can rest and that the things that you do don't make you valuable, then you will never be able to rest on a Sunday and give that day to him and say, God, this is your day, so I can have you. All of it rests on this. And then here's my prayer for you this week. One that I think you can repeat to yourself. A prayer that my wife and I have been praying, because my professor who taught, who's taught me so much, he prayed it when he got married. He said, You should pray this when you get married, and I said, Okay. You're so much cooler than I am. So I did. Proverbs 37 through 9. And this is key. This has been a prayer of mine. I've prayed ever since we got engaged in this prayer all the time. I think it helps us live the way that we live. It's been so fruitful. Proverbs 37 through 9. Two things I ask of you. Two things. Do not refuse me before I die. Keep deception and lies far from me. Number one. Put me in the truth and two, give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me the food that is my portion, just what I need, that I will not be fooled and deny you and say, Who is Yahweh? Or that I not be want and steal and profane the name of God. Family, I hope, and I hope that as I trust growth, you will find it in yourself to trust Him and then use your life to give and to bless because that is what we were creating let's pray Lord God we want to admit to you that ever since we were little and even now and all through We are continually told that we are that which we own. Our value is made up by that which we have, that which we can claim, the emblem on our diploma, the number of zeros on our salaries, the number of square feet on our homes, the value of our clothes, all of it making us secure you're teaching us that you are the owner of all things and that you give us all good gifts and that you will take care of us. But I pray against the spirit of guiltiness, that we feel like we're not doing enough and that we're not good enough and that all of this is even more oppressive than one, but I pray for the spirit of freedom that you die for our sin so that we could be with you, that you can call us sons and daughters. You can call us your bride for all of eternity, and that we, God, in our faith, in our trust, that say, God, you are everything, and I believe you, I trust you, and I want you. And in doing so, would you free us? Help us, indeed, to keep us away from the lies that tell us all these things that aren't true, and give us exactly what we need, that we will always
0: seek after you. We give thank you thanks and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Can you continue to take time?